Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. NASCAR held its first strictly stock race in Charlotte, North Carolina, on June 19, 1949, and for 66 of its 74-year existence, the driver-owner was a big part of the sports foundation and a big part of helping NASCAR in its rather unstructured formative years. The process of becoming a driver-owner was rather simple. Take the family car, make a few minor changes, tape the headlights, paint a number on the doors that could be easily washed off, and that was it. The idea of being a driver owner had come to fruition. Getting the car to the track and keeping it in one piece during the race, however, was an entirely different story. As time went on, speeds increased. The cars became more race cars than passenger cars when intermediate tracks and super speedways came onto NASCAR's schedule. So why did drivers elect to drive their own car versus driving someone else's? Well, first and foremost, it came down to being the boss. Secondly, there was no split in the money. And most of all, there was no worry about being fired midway through the season when personalities clashed. The downside was finding sponsors that didn't bounce checks, being able to find the best employees, and keeping cars built and ready to go for meeting the demands of a grueling 36 schedule in the modern era and 54 race schedules before 1971. And it was also having to work on, qualify, and drive the car. That was an entirely different headache altogether once the team arrived at the track. Wearing many hats is tough as driver and team owner. Many have tried the driver-team owner roles such as Bobby Allison, Dave Marcus, Ricky Rudd, and Alan Kowicki, to name only a few in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and Tony Stewart as late as 2011 when he won his third championship as a driver-owner. And it would be almost impossible as a single owner and driver in today's world. Denny Hamlin and Brad Keselowski of 2311 Racing and RFK Racing have tremendous backing to compete in today's arena. Now, there are multiple investors in their organizations of 350 to 500 employees. The cost of a single race car would buy three cars in the 1980s. There are armies of engineers and specialists and car chiefs. It's an entirely different world. The business models of decades ago called for one man owning and driving their own respective short track and super speedway cars out of one shop that they worked on alongside a dozen or so employees. From 1949 through 2015, the driver owner was the foundation of NASCAR's prestigious Cup Series.
Hey everyone, welcome back to episode number 55. That's right, Double Nickel 5-5 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski along with my good buddy Ben White, and we like to talk about NASCAR, but we're talking about NASCAR back in the day. Episode 55 is going to be about car number 55. We're going to start off with that, but the biggest highlight of today's show, and Ben, I'm really looking forward to talking with you about this. You came up with an outstanding idea of something we just really don't see anymore in NASCAR. And this is kind of, you know, this is kind of the foundation that NASCAR was built upon, which is namely the owner drivers, you know, the team, the guys that own their own team, drove for themselves. We really don't see that uh, at, at all now, certainly not in the cup series. And, uh, you know, I think we see that a, a little bit in the truck series and that, but it, that's a, a great topic to talk about. So we're going to talk about that in a minute, Ben, but let's, let's talk about number 55. I mean, you know, this is the 55th episode of the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. And as we do every week, we kind of quantify or, or um, solidify, if you will, each episode by talking about the respective car number that is associated with it. And number 55 has got a pretty interesting history and, and a, uh, a couple of big names in this as well, too. So let's tell me a little bit about uh, number 55 and, and uh, you know, the, the significance it's played in NASCAR's history. Well, sure will, Jerry. You know, a lot of times in the past, we've had some numbers that really didn't have that many winners. Number 55 has got 13 victories to its credit uh, over the past 74 years. And leading that pack is uh, Junior Johnson. You know, Junior uh, was a driver-owner uh, a couple of times uh, throughout his career with the number 55. And uh, he owns that uh, distinction of winning the most times with the number five times uh, back in the 1950s uh, uh, with the number 55. Actually, his first victory, believe it or not, came in the year 1955. And he did that uh, at Altamont. Oh, gosh, I can't say that second name. You might have to help me there. Fairgrounds Raceway, Altamont, New York. And it came July 29th, 1955, uh, when he won in number 55 for the very first time. I'm going to try to murder this name here. <laughs> I can't say it. I'm going to spell it for the listeners. S-C-H-E-N-E-C-T-A-D-Y. Can you see why I can't say that word? Schenectady, buddy. Schenectady. See, okay, so you could you could master that. Uh, other, us I'm Southerners, a Yankee. That's why. Well, I mean. Well, right. Okay. I know. I know. Well, now, us now Southerners. We're even now. Could be, now yeah. we're even now. Because now, yeah, now I got something to come back to you. I mean, whenever you say Salisbury <laughs> and I say Salisbury, now I can say Schenectady. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, see, you could even. You can even master that i can't even pronounce it so there you go so that's that's your new word here but but uh I'll, i'm just gonna stick with altamont new york How about that well uh, altamont that was also um altamont that was a very famous wasn't it uh, on horse track oh no 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 i'm thinking of altamont california that was the, yeah. the famous um uh, rock concert that the rolling stones were involved i think oh. it was 69 i think and that's where okay. the hell's angels wound up killing somebody and then oh. Ouch. And, and, and uh, the stones were on the on the uh, on the stage when it happened. And so yeah, I mean, that's what Altamont was. But yeah, Altamont okay. whole, right. whole different whole different town though. Okay, all right. Well, okay. Well, Junior Johnson five victories. Uh, he leads the number fifty five. Then Tiny Lund, uh, Dwayne Tiny Lund has four four victories in the number fifty five, and he also carried that over to the Grand American side and won couple of championships on the Grand American side. Phil Parsons has one victory. Bobby Hamilton won. Benny Parsons has one victory in the number 55, and then Brian Vickers. So you have a total of 13 wins with the car number 
But again, Junior Johnson uh, leads the pack there. Uh, the first start for number 55, uh, Glenn Dunaway, uh, Okanochee Speedway, and that is in Hillsboro, North Carolina. And that uh, was on August 7th, 1949. Uh, it's when uh, Mr. Dunaway pulled that off. It was an 180-mile event there at Okanochee Speedway. Actually, Orange Speedway is also what it was referred to for many years. And that track uh, closed in 1968. So, yeah, so 50, number 55 has got some some history behind it with the, with the 13 wins. But I guess the most prominent person to – uh, to carry that number for a lot of years in the Cup Series was Benny Parsons uh, carrying that throughout the 1980s. Uh, I, I still remember that black and white uh, number 55 Cope car, the Copenhagen Chevrolet. Leo Jackson was the team owner uh, who who fielded that car for so many years. And uh, gosh, just really missed Benny Parsons uh, in that car. And Carried that number 55. I think one of the most uh, prominent victories I remember, which was a, a victory that did not count in the official standings, was winning the the, the Winston uh, at Atlanta Motor Speedway. It was Mother's Day of 1986, and the moms won out. There was hardly anybody at that racetrack. I remember <laughs> that day. And uh, Winston's like, oops, this didn't work so good. Uh, moms uh, said, no, you're not going to go to the racetrack. You're going to stay here with me because it's Mother's Day. And uh, anyway, Benny won that race and, uh, yeah, took home, took home the big dollars in the Winston that year. But, uh, yeah, number 55, Benny Parsons, that was a number that uh, he carried for many years. And also he won the championship using number 72 in 1973. But 55 was a number that a lot of, a lot of race fans associated with Benny Parsons. You know, and, and I think, you know, there have been a number of other drivers that, you know, have not won in the 55. And to me, the guy that almost immediately came to my mind when we were talking about the 55 is Michael Waltrip. I mean, he had mm -hmm. it for a number of years too, but I mean, <clears throat> you've had Mark Martin actually drove in the 55, Derek Cope, uh, Gray Galding, uh, uh, T I'm sorry, JJ Yaley, Reed Sorensen. The most recent start of the 55 was last year at Kansas. And that was Matt Mills. And he uh, finished 39th out of 39, or I'm sorry, 38th out of 39 cars. Um, but, um, and then let's see, Jeffrey Earnhardt right, raced in 2018, along with, uh, Reed Sorensen, but, uh, yeah, the 55 has not had a lot of action of late, but still, you know, when, whenever you talk about, you know, uh, a, a guy like a, a junior Johnson or a tiny Lund, I mean, that's, that's, that's saying a lot. I mean, that, you know, that they, they took that car number to victory lane so many times and, um, you know, I, I'd like to see, well, my, another guy that also raced in that 55 was Michael McDowell, you know, the guy that won the Daytona 500 last year yeah. as well. So yeah, sure did. You know, mm -hmm. definitely, yeah. you know, it's, it's a number that it's kind of what the, one of the numbers that I like to talk about is saying it's, it's got a lot of history. It's got some wins, but, you know, I think they could have had a lot more wins, but it just never played out that way though. No, that's true. And, you know, a, a win, as you were talking, that comes to mind, Bobby Hamilton, as I said earlier, he won a race at Talladega driving uh, a Chevrolet for uh, Andy Petrie racing. Mm -hmm. And I just remember it, it, that was a very memorable win because Andy had not won that many races as a team owner. And I, I don't know. I just remember Andy being so excited to, to see Bobby <laughs> win in that car. And, you know, when he came down pit road, I just remember, uh, you know, Andy running up to the car and, and basically just jumping on top of the hood and slapping the hood four or five <laughs> times and looking at Bobby through the windshield, just a, a very, uh, 
very memorable victory for Bobby that day. Of course, we sadly we lost Bobby a few years back to to, to cancer, and just just a great guy, great driver, and I, you know the I guess the fifty five to me has also been a favorite number as far as a race car number. I, I've always thought fifty five fifty five looks so good on the side of a race car. I don't know why it's just one of those very sleek, very neat looking car numbers. And, you know, we, I, I do also remember, as I said before, Tiny Lund running the 55 and, and being so, uh, so good with that number. You know, he ran the number on Camaros in that Grand American division and had some soft drink sponsorship there for so many years on that car. Just, just a great number. Brian Vickers, you know, won uh, for Michael Waltrip racing uh, in the 55 also. And uh, it's just a good looking race car number. And and but but like I say, Benny Parsons, I guess, is the one that we all seem to associate the number with most directly in the Cup Series, and uh, yeah, just just an incredible number, and and a uh, lot lot of good good memories about Benny, and actually all of these drivers who who ran the fifty five all those years. Right. We well, you know. I think that one other thing too is, um, especially going back into the eighties and the nineties, one of the the um, uh, things that was associated with the 55 was Sammy Hagar's song. I can't drive 55. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, if I'm a NASCAR driver and, you know, my owner comes to me and says, well, you know, maybe, um, you know, I'd like you to drive the 55. And then you start thinking, well, wait a minute, I can't drive 55. You know? so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a possibility that could be uh, part of it though. But, and, uh, and, you know, I, I know Jerry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I know another thought I, I, I immediately thought of with the 55 was back in 1974 when President Richard Nixon said we all had to drive 55 yeah. with the gas crisis. Yep, yep. <laughs> and listen, folks, let me tell you something. When you're when you're used to to driving 70 miles an hour everywhere you go, and you get down to 55 miles an hour on an interstate, it feels like you're oh my gosh, you are crawling. And yep. you, and back in those days, I was 14 years old. I hadn't quite got my driver's license yet. But I remember my dad, we go places and he'd say, nope, we got to do 55, really can't get over 60. And it was like crawling on the interstate. Yep. I kid you not. It was just after, you remember that, Jerry? Well, I mean, I'll, golly. I'll, yeah, I mean, I'll, was, I'll tell you my story. I mean, um, 55, um, I was, let's see, I would have been 17, I think, at the time. Yeah. And I You're was just on, a little bit older than I am. Just a couple of years, but a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, I was on the Dan Ryan Expressway, which is obviously a very well-known expressway in Chicago. And now it's kind of like the uh, the killing fields. There's so many shootings on that trail expressway. That's why I never drive it anymore. But back then in the day, <clears throat> you know, the speed limit was 55. And I was merging from uh, what is called I-57, which is, you know, that's the route you take to uh, you know, down, down uh, the southern part of Illinois. So I'm merging from I-57 into northbound um, uh, the Dan Ryan. And I was doing, I think, 57 or 58, and I got pulled over. 17 years old. I am trembling. I am trembling. It was a Chicago copper at the time because at the time, Chicago police, um, they were the ones that were responsible for all the uh, expressways within the city limits. Now it's been the state of Illinois for uh, state police for a number of years. But back then it was the city of Chicago. And sure enough, you know, the guy had a radar uh, thing sticking out his window. These are the old time radar. I'm sure you remember the, where they were sticking out the back window kind of thing. You had the gun pointed out. Like a bazooka. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So he pulls me over and I'm like petrified because I'm saying this can be my first ticket ever. Oh my God. And I was like, I said, I was only doing, I think 57 or 58. So 
comes up to my, my car and he looks at my driver's license and I'll never forget. He goes, you're not Wally's kid, are you? I go, yeah. He says, get the hell out of here. Turned out <laughs> they, he was a really good friend of my father's and he didn't, he didn't write me for it. But wow. I mean, that was, and, and it, it just, it, that song, you know, every time I, I hear that song on the radio, that's one of the first things I think about is my God, that would have been my first ticket. Now, as it turns out though, I did get my first ticket about probably three months later. Um, I was going to work at my job at a local uh, department store and somebody changed the street that I normally would take, which used to be a you know two-way street. It turned into be a one-way street and I'm going the wrong way down the one-way street. And I get pulled yeah. up and get a ticket. So yeah. So well, I mean, uh, all right, I'll add this, but I'm not going to give you the whole story because we've got too much <laughs> to talk about. I got two tickets in the same week. Oh okay? boy. Oh boy. Well, right after I was 16, you know, I was going to college, local community college. I got two tickets in the same week. I, as it turned out, I had a bad speedometer, but I was really petrified, not of the cop as much as I was trying to tell my dad, well, I got a ticket. Really? Okay. That's not the worst of the news. This is the <laughs> second one I got this week. <laughs> you what? Anyway, that's the story for the time. But a side story to this 55 angle that we got into is, again, 1974, just very quickly. That was the year that NASCAR, uh, because of the energy crisis that we were in then, mm -hmm. was that uh, Bill France, senior founder of NASCAR, uh, elected to knock out about 50 miles of the distance off of each race that year because uh, because of the energy crisis we were going through then is very mm -hmm. similar to what we're going through now. And so really that year, the Daytona 500 wasn't the Daytona 500. It was the Daytona 450. Right. And uh, so if you remember, they were knocking out uh, some of the distance, all the distances and all the races, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we were going through that. So that's part of what this 55 uh, speed limit was that year. We were having a problem with OPEC at that year and getting oil to the United States. And so very much kind of what we're doing now. Yep. And as far as oil prices and gas prices and hoping we don't get into the, some of those uh, situations, but back to the car number 55, uh, again, great drivers in the car, great drivers for that number. And, uh, it, it's part of the show that I very much enjoy when we go back through all these car numbers and the drivers and the faces and the talents of these drivers and the cars that, that carry the numbers and a lot of history with each one of the, that not only the teams, but the drivers that carried it. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, the, the one thing about number 55, and, you know, I, I think there's a lot of fans that can, um, you know, kind of understand where I'm coming from with this, because that's a number that, you know, has had some success, but has not had, you know, the success, like, let's say, of a 24 or, or a 48 or something like that. I, I'm, I invariably, when I run across fans, and we do turn uh, our attention to talking to uh, about car numbers. It's it's really ironic how some can identify a certain car number only with one driver. For example, the 55. You know, I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, the first thing I thought about was Michael Walter when he was in the 55. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you got Kenny Wallace was in the 55, you know, Reed Sorensen, J.J. Yaley, like we said, you know, all those guys, uh, you know, more recent times, Michael McDowell, etc. And it's it's interesting. It's it's really an interesting study in in um, in human sociology or psychology, if you will, that you know fans gravitate 
to drivers, but they also gravitate to numbers. So they'll remember a guy who was driving the 55, but they may not remember him driving, let's say the 36 or whatever mm-hmm. you know, other car. It, it's, I've always found that very interesting when, when fans can remember a driver in a certain car number, but they just don't remember the driver in a different car number, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, right. Well, we've seen, uh, uh, you know, going back to Richard Petty, for instance, I mean, everybody knows he's driven the 43 for 98% of his career. Even people that aren't real big race fans uh, gravitate towards Richard Petty in the right. 43. There have been times, though, in his career, he's driven the 40, the 41, the 42, uh, even the 44. 44, right. Uh, and he even drove the number two, uh, like I, I mentioned in the last podcast. And there's some things I, you know, I've been around this a long time. I've been uh, into this 50 years. This is my 50th year uh, being a part of NASCAR. And I find out things, you know, on a daily or weekly basis. I, you know, I say, gosh, I didn't know that. I mean, (laughs) and and that's fun for me because I didn't know. So I didn't realize that he had driven car number two before and he did that. So uh, it's fun for me to go and find some things. I mean, believe me, I don't know everything. I know a lot, but I don't, I don't know everything. And it's just fun to find new facts, new, new things, or people would tell me things I didn't know. And like a Dale Inman or, or Richard Petty himself. And that's what's so much fun talking to these older drivers. I remember this too. I can share this with you. I wrote Bobby Allison's first book in, in 1991, 92, it came out uh, at the beginning of 93. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and you get this with a lot of these older drivers, you think, okay, great. I got the story. I got everything done. I got the story. This is wonderful. And then after the book comes out, they'll tell you all these other great stories. Well, <laughs> why, why didn't you tell you, me back then? I know. Why didn't you tell me that last when we were putting this together? Oh, I don't know. I just didn't think about it. So they'll tell you even not as good or better stories after the book's published. You're sitting there signing your name in them, and they're signing their name. Oh, did I tell you about what happens? Like, well, why didn't you tell me this before? You know, we had this great book. I mean, this would have been better than what we put in here. Oh, I know. I just didn't think about it. So they've all got stories to tell and it's so much fun to sit down with them. And if you could just, you know, because there's, you know, they've forgotten more than, you know, than they've, they know, I guess. And uh, so it's just fun to talk to them about it. But it was, I remember we ran into that a few times when we were doing book signings and said, Oh, this reminds me of another story. It's like, well, why didn't you tell me that? So anyway, I'm sure you've run into that some too. I have one word for you on that one. Ready? Yep. Sequel. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that'd be great yes i you know that and that would be a i'll tell you what richard petty bobby allison kale yarborough uh even daryl waltrip i mean there's so many of these great stories yeah. Yeah. that it'd be great if you could get them to sit down and talk to you about what they forgot to tell you the first time that'd, be, right. that'd be a great title stories i forgot to tell you the first time that'd be a great title. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be great yeah it would sure exactly. would yeah yeah all right. Well, yeah. you know, let's let's uh, kind of segue from the 55 into the the big topic we're going to talk about t- today uh, in the Lifetime and NASCAR podcast. And this one, Ben, you hit this one out of the park. You keep on hitting it out of the park so much. I mean, you know, I, I think I should have the Cubs sign you because you keep on hitting it out of the, out of the park. <laughs> I don't know here, about you know? that. The Cubs oh, well, could, I don't know about that. Well, the Cubs could use a little help. I know that for sure. But but you know, the the, the main topic we want to talk about today in today's podcast is the, you know the the almost the 
complete disappearance of owner drivers or driver owners, however way you want to call it. Uh, right. you know, we, back in the day, NASCAR, like I said earlier, was kind of built, uh, the foundation was built upon guys who not only race, but also own their own cars. And, and we saw that through a number of drivers over the years. <clears throat> and then some of the ones that, you know, that stand out to me, especially, uh, and this is the, the one guy that stands out specifically to me, uh, I've always had kind of a soft spot in my heart for him was Alan Kowicki. I mean, we we had a lot in common. You know, he was from Milwaukee. I'm from Chicago. Uh, we both had Polish heritage. I mean, we got along so famously. Uh, and, you know, he was the, uh, actually probably one of the last guys that, you know, really um, did it, you know, to, to use the old Paul Anka. Well, the Paul Anka wrote it and Frank Sinatra made a big hit out of it, you know, my way. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what, and when Alan won the, uh, the championship in 92. They played that song. Uh, at the banquet, you know, my way, because he did it his way. And he did it as a, a driver owner. I mean, a guy basically tows his race car from Milwaukee all the way down to Charlotte, um, you know, looking, seeking fame, fame and fortune. And, you know, we just don't see that anymore today, because, you know, it, it obviously takes a lot of money, you need a lot of help around you. And, you know, invariably, you need, you know, either investors or, you know, some other way to, to, um, you know, handle the business and everything. And then there's just, it's so difficult for a driver just to you know, maintain what he has to do on the racetrack, let alone having to, to think about all the business operations, the sponsorship obligation, all that kind of thing that they would have to do if they were, you know, continuing on as a driver owner. But, you know, just in general, I mean, am I, am I on base or am I off base when it comes to talking about that money was kind of the, the big thing that kind of, um, you know, saw the demise, if you will, of owner drivers. No, no, you're totally on board. And that's exactly, you hit it right on the, on the head of the nail there. And let me, let me see if I can sort of paint you a a picture of where, where we were and where we are in the very beginning days of NASCAR, the the little cardboard placards. Okay. With little cardboard uh, signs were put in filling station windows Mm -hmm. and said, uh, we're going to have a race down at this particular cow pasture, so to speak, on Highway 6, okay? And it was very crudely organized, and you'd have guys, please come down and watch the race. Well, they also had, please come down and enter the race. Mm-hmm. So what you'd have is you'd have Chevys, Fords, Buicks, Oldsmobiles, Kaisers, uh, whatever type of car you had. And and when you fixed a car to go race in these particular races, you basically did two or three things. You changed the oil in your car. You taped up the headlights. You got your oldest belt, so to speak, out of the closet, and you cut it off a little bit, and you basically put these leather belts on the doors so the doors wouldn't fly open. That's basically it. And you tuned up. You put some new park, the spark plugs in the engine. There was really not a lot to do to these cars, okay? So technically, you're a team owner. Or you're a car owner at that point. If you want to drive it great, if you want to have somebody else drive it great because you're just you don't have the nerve to get out there, you go to the closet or your bathroom, whatever, and you get some white shoe polish and you put your favorite number on it or NASCAR gives you a number to put on your car. So you paint it on the side of the car and then you get down to your hands and knees and you pray, please, Lord, don't let me wreck this car, because <laughs> if I wreck the car, my wife is going to kill me pretty much. OK, that's the I'm ritual. I'm going to get the kids to school. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get this kids to school and I still owe payments on this car of 1722 a month at that right. whatever it was in 1949. Okay, so you get out there, you know, and you're going to be the great next great race car driver if you don't flip it over. Yep. 
Okay. Lee Petty did flip his over in the first race and that didn't go over well with Richard Petty's mother. That's another story. So you're, you're at that point, you're technically a team owner. So this goes on through the forties, late forties into the fifties. Uh, and then it gets a little more sophisticated in the sixties where you early sixties, uh, the speeds are going bigger. The tires are getting bigger. The cars are more racy, uh, faster, meaning that you need to put more of an emphasis into building it a race car. Okay. So you go to a company that Ford, uh, builds called home and Moody. So you go in and say, I want to buy a race car. I want it to be blue or yellow or red or whatever color it's going to come out on the other end. It's going to cost you 12, five. Okay. This is more like a race car. And you're going to, then you're going to either drive it yourself again or hire someone, but let's say you're a driver owner. Okay. And so that's more of a sophisticated sort of situation. You're in the sixties, you're hauling it all over the United States. You're trying to make a living seventies come along. Engines are bigger sponsors coming in expenses get more expensive. I guess a quick way to say that you need big sponsorships. You need more sophistication among crew members. You need more engine parts. You need more money. So this is going on. This is building and building and building to more and more into a professional sport, more along the lines of the stick and ball sports like football, baseball, basketball. This is what NASCAR wants. So finally, by the time you get through the 70s into the 80s, this is a big professional sport with big money. Okay, if you let me back up, 70s sponsor 36 races. I've said it before, $100,000 for 36 races. You couldn't even, you couldn't even pay a tire bill almost, <laughs> you know, for a race anymore for that or engines for that. I mean, that's, that's, it's not even heard of. Yep. So I'm just trying to paint you a picture. And I think, I'm not sure about this. I could be way off the mark. But say by the mid nineties, I think Ricky Rudd possibly was maybe the, one of the last team owner drivers. Okay. Mid, maybe mid nineties. And then it was like super expensive by that point. I won't, maybe not the last, but one of the last by then, you know, you're talking about, uh, gosh, I don't know what the sponsorships were then let's call it 3 million, 4 million mid nineties. So you went from taping up your headlights in the forties and strapping your door shut to mid four, four 4.5 million dollars. Okay. Yep. Yep. Mid nineties. That's how far it is. But now we're talking in the year 2022 and you're talking half million dollar race cars per race car. And you're talking engineers and you're talking specialists and you're talking 500 employees like a Childress or a Roush or a Penske. It's way, way out of the park. And I don't think you're really ever going to see another driver team owner again, unless you have won the lottery and it's, (laughs) you know, uh, 750, a a billion dollars or something, something crazy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Those days are gone as far as being a team owner driver. And I think a lot of these guys in the mid nineties saw the writing on the wall, like the Ricky Rudds and like the Dave Marcuses and like those types, even though Dave Marcus was considered an independent type driver. And the sad part is this is before you got into all the, uh, 
you know, the charters and, you know, when you go and buy a charter now, it's $15 million or something to that tune where what I mean by charter, I'm rambling. What, what I mean by charter is that you go in and say, okay, I want to buy your charter. At least when you walk away, you're not walking away with flat tires and bent yep. sheet metal and a bunch of equipment. Someone buys your charter, at least you walk away with 12 or $15 million. Right. The Dave Marcuses of the world and those types, sadly, walked away with a, a building full of sheet metal and a bunch of tires and a bunch of bodies and a bunch of obsolete pieces of equipment that they can't use anymore. And that's what I, I do applaud NASCAR for that. At least the guys getting out of the business have something to fall back on. Right. But that's in a nutshell, maybe not quite as well explained as I hoped, but that's kind of where we are from, from going from a bunch of cars on a, in a pasture to where we are today. That's what it is all about. And that's, that's the, the nutshell story of a team driver owner as to where it started and where we are. Well, you know, the, the one thing though, and I'm going to, this is two diametrically different directions where I'm going to go with my kind of my response to what you just said. We still have a lot of owner drivers. It's just that they're in the lowest grassroots level of tracks there are. I mean, like, for example, we were talking off the air about some of the tracks that, you know, used to be around my area that still are like mm-hmm. Rundy uh, Speedway, which is in, in uh, Morris, Illinois, about, um, uh, maybe about 50 miles from where I live at, you know, I mean, almost everybody that's there owns their own cars, you know, that's the the whole thing. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- and there's that, but here's the other angle too. And, and this is something that I've only seen one of these races, but, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, Ben, but there's a, a, um, uh, a series called the lemons series and you can buy your own race car. And, and this is kind of where, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, people want to like make, you know, they, they kind of they have a, had their dreams. They aspire to be a big race car driver, a big team owner, what have you. You can actually buy a lemon car for 500 bucks or less and run it and, you know, be fairly competitive. I mean, there's a, a track here in, in the near Joliet, not to Chicagoland Speedway. This is a, uh, uh, what is it called? The, um, the Autobahn, Autobahn Country Club, which is like literally two or three miles from the Speedway. And they had a lemons race. Oh, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, I went to, and, it was so funny to watch the kind of cars that were, I mean, we're talking about Opals. You remember the Opal? Yeah, car? yeah I do remember the Opal. Yeah. yeah I mean, they were Neat. running that and, you know, for 500 bucks or less and, you know, you, you could, you know, you can, you can race. But the point I'm making is that, you know, if you, if, you know, especially for the fans that are listening, if you ever wanted to get the, the feel, the vibe, the the concept of the owner driver, there still is a way for you to do that. It's obviously just in the lower ranks, but I agree with you, Ben. We're I I don't think we'll ever see an own, another owner driver, um, you know, especially in the Cup Series, unless, like you said, somebody brings in a lot of money. I mean, I mean, you know, let's let's try to talk Elon Musk into getting behind the wheel and have him have an electric car. Yeah. You know, that'd be that'd be kind of fun. Yeah, too. I mean that that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I mean, you. I could do it. Myself. Well, no, that's not, that's not really accurate either. I, you know, I started to say I could do it myself if I could win some kind of massive lottery and win <laughs> right. 900, you know, million dollars, but at the same time, I'm too old to do it. I, you know, you'd have to, I don't think it's even conceivable to do it now, but there was a time when, when, and we're talking about the cup series now, mm-hmm. if you, there was a time when Ricky Rudd owned his own team and Alan Kowicki owned his own team and right. Buddy Baker owned his own team. 
and and it's even in a time when you could uh you could go to a sponsor and say you know to run the next 36 races i, I need two million dollars to run you know or three okay I'll, okay I'll say three three million dollars to run 36 races on the cup series and from your corporation to sponsor my team mm-hmm. and I'll have six or seven cars and I'll have 20 employees that kind of thing and I, I don't you know, it was doable then, but I don't think it's really now doable because seriously, you're talking 450,000. I've heard a number of $450,000 per car mm-hmm. to run in 2022. And per race, so, bef- per race. Per, yeah. So if you even, before you even get to the racetrack, if you're a two, two car team, uh, and you have, um, you got to have a car on the trailer for each team and you got two on the track. That's 2 million bucks before you ever get off the trailer and not counting tires and hotels and people and technology and engineering. I mean, wow. You know, and pray to God, you don't wreck something because, and then we got a supply chain problem, uh, that kind of thing. So, I mean, back in the day, I mean, money is relative. It does, you know, back in the day, there wasn't as much money, I guess, floating around. And so when you went, so you went to a major corporation, a fortune 500 company and said, I need $3 million. Well, back, I guess back then that was a lot of money, you know, in that aspect, if you, mm-hmm. if you understand what I'm trying to say. Right. Right. So anyway, uh, you know, the, the, you know, God love them, the, the driver owner, but even back in Lee Petty's day, back in, he won three championships, 54, 58 and 59. And even back in those days, it was very hard to run the 50 or 52, 54 races to become champion in, night, in those years. Right, right. And so in, in looking at, you know, we put together a little mini list here. Uh, to And there are many others, but I mean, Lee Petty did it, you know, in the 50s. And then he built Petty Enterprises. And then Junior Johnson drove his own cars and then became just a team owner. You know, Bobby Allison went back and forth from being a, a team owner uh, driver and then drove for other team owners. And then you had Richard Childress, who started in, as a team owner driver in 73. Mm-hmm. And then in 81, turned the car over to, Rick, to uh, Dale Earnhardt for 10 races. And then back in 84, and then he had R- Ricky Rudd drive for him a couple of years and then turned the car back over to Dale Earnhardt. So after 81, he never drove again as far as uh, driving. Then you had a bunch of independent drivers. What I mean by that is they didn't have the backing from Ford and Dodge and Chevy or General Motors. Uh, you know, they just did it on their own. Then you had James Hilton, who won a couple of races. Uh, then, you, you know, but for the most part, he was considered an independent driver. And then you mentioned the, the great Alan Kowicki who pulled it off. And, and the funny part of Alan's story is he won the, the 92 championship with about 10 or 12 guys Yeah. yeah. when all the other teams had 35 and 40 guys and they're, and they're like, hold the phone. What do you why, How can this guy down here win for 10 guys on his payroll? And you got 40. And you can't win a championship, but he can. So what's up with that? Yep. I remember a lot of, there was a lot of nervous crew members that at, in the beginning of 1993, <laughs> I know that to be a fact. Right. Cause they were like, how, you know, am I going to lose my job? Right. I know that was really, really the scuttlebutt are uh, going around because they're like, crap, I could lose my job because they proved they could do it with 10 people. Yep. And then of course, Dave Marcus ran, a, you know, he also drove for, 
for other prominent teams. But when those prominent teams didn't have openings, he drove his own car for years and years and years. That number 71, blue number 71 car. Then Ricky Rudd went away from other teams to drive his own. So there's a lot of, a lot of drivers that were driver owners that have tried it. Uh, But I, but I got to say no question that Alan Kowicki was the most successful winning only five, I believe five races, but he won the championship. So he wins the prize for being the most successful driver owner. Exactly. Well, you know, in, in speaking of Alan, um, it's kind of, it's kind of, this is an interesting weekend because we're racing at Atlanta motor speedway, which is where Alan won the championship in 92. And, you know, I mean, it was such, it's probably one of the closest championship battles there ever was. And here we're going to have Atlanta motor speedway with a completely new redesign repaved. I mean, it's basically gonna be like a brand new racetrack this coming Sunday. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to that because, you know, you know, as well as I do, and, and this kind of dovetails into talking about Kowicki and, you know, being uh, one of the last owner drivers and certainly the guy, you know, the, I think probably one of the few that want to, well, not one of the few, but I mean, certainly one of the few in recent years in the last 20, 30 years that won the championship. But I mean, you know, you go to a place like Atlanta Motor Speedway and that place, you know, started in 1960. It was, you know, the foundation of it was a lot of, you know, uh, owner drivers at the time. Now we obviously there, there aren't any, but you know, it's, it's always, it's good to you know go back with the history of a place like that. I was looking at at the uh, Atlanta Motor Speedway yesterday. I was looking at uh, some stats up, and you know remember, it wasn't too long ago, uh, 2010 to be exact, that Atlanta had its last two races. Uh, uh, you know they normally always had two races a year, and they had one race taken away from them. And there was a you know at probably around 2012 2013, there was a very serious. Uh, discussion being made that maybe they might even close Atlanta Motor Speedway. So I'm really happy yeah. to see that, you know, we're going to see this place. You know, I mean, they had two races back the first for the first time last year. And then this year with a brand new track and a, you know, a redesign, I'm looking forward to, it. but I mean, it's, it's places like that, that you always like to look back on what used to be. And, you know, when Kowicki won there in 92, I mean, that was Richard Petty's last race. It was Jeff Gordon's first cup race. It was, you know, um, um, uh, Colwicky, you know, was battling uh, Bill Elliott for the championship. I mean, uh, I think Davey Ellison was in the mix, if I remember correctly. Too. Oh, yeah, sure was. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it was, it, it's, you know, there are so many places and, you know, when you see tracks like that, you, you can't help but think about, you know, what it was like back then, you know, the, the guys that were running. And, you know, one guy we haven't even mentioned and I mean this with all due respect to him, you know, if he's listening or listens to this podcast, um, you know, Daryl Waltrip, I mean, here's a guy who, you know, had sig- you know, c- considerable success driving for others. And then he started his own team. And unfortunately the success just, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't pan out for him. And uh, I think that that was kind of a, uh, it probably wasn't the best way for him to end his career. I mean, I think he probably, uh, might be the first to tell you that, you know, maybe he, he went on a little bit longer, but I mean, he, he still believed in his himself. He believed in his team and he felt that, you know, if, if nobody else is going to give me a ride, I'm going to do it myself. And that I like mm-hmm. that aspect of drivers who've done that over the years. You know, if, if I can't get a ride or I can't get the sponsorship or, or, or an ownership rather uh, from somebody else, I'm just going to go ahead and do it myself. And yeah. I miss that. I really, really miss that in today's NASCAR. And right. it's not a nat- knock about against today's NASCAR, but it's just, you know, this is a part of the history of the sport that, you know, unfortunately, like many other things has gone away. 
Yeah, well, you know, in the beginning years of Daryl's uh, tenure as a team owner driver, he has great success winning several races in that 17 Western Auto Car. And mm-hmm. he won the Southern 500. He won some races at North Wilkesboro. And in the beginning years, was clicking right along. I think one of the problems that it wasn't his fault at all, um, after the Western Auto sponsorship went away, another company came aboard and promised him everything but the moon. <laughs> right. And and they never paid. And I think that put his team in the hole for a couple of years and, and had a trouble getting coming out of that. But that was definitely not Daryl's fault. It was just, I mean, this company promised him everything and he took it upon faith that they were going to pay and they didn't. And, you know, that's, and that's another problem with team owner drivers. Um, they have to concentrate on the driving and being successful in the racetrack. But then when you're a team owner, also, you have to negotiate the deals and you have to make sure your employees are good. You got to make sure you're wearing a lot of hats in that mm-hmm. scenario. When you're, if you're just a driver, you're concentrating on just the driving and see, that's a, that's a double-edged sword because, um, when you're driving for somebody else, you got somebody in your ear all the time saying, do better, do better, do better. And they don't quite understand what's going on on the racetrack and why things aren't happening that way. When you, when you're a driver owner, you do understand why things don't go the way they should sometimes, but you have to change that hat to another hat Yep. because you're, you're responsible for everything when you own it. And you're flying right after a race, you're flying to Chicago or you're flying to Detroit or you're flying to some major Atlanta, some major city to sit in on a corporate meeting about sponsorship. That's the livelihood of the race team. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they'll promise you everything in the world, but when the check bounces, you know, then what do you do? And you got employees that need you, you know, to make sure that that doesn't happen. And a lot of those cases, it's not your fault. It's the team owner. Somebody promised you something and it didn't work out. So yeah, there's just too many hats to wear. And then you got to go get into race car mode and race driver mode when you get to the racetrack and that in itself, especially with Lord, I would hate to be a, a driver owner in this particular setting with this brand new car they're trying to work through. Cause I've heard drivers, even Kevin Harvick say the other day that, this particular car we're in now, you, you know, you got to admit, look, I don't understand. Okay. I, you don't have, you can't have, there's no time for an ego to have right now with this yeah. new one. Right. You just got to say, I don't get it. I don't understand. Let's back up two steps and let's start over. And can you imagine the pressure of being a team owner and driver in this car today, right. but back to history. Yeah. These, these types of things, it would be too much back in those days. It was a lot of headache for a driver owner to make sure everything got paid and everything got handled and the money came in and all these things. So uh, yeah. And, and let me correct something I said a minute ago, cause I wasn't exactly correct. And I don't want to say something wrong. I said, Alan Kowicki maybe was the best as far as being an owner driver. That's not really correct. Well, of, gotta his go. era, of his era, of his era, I would say. Well, yeah, I would, maybe you're right. But, but as I, as I said that I was really not correct. Lee Petty, yep. you got to give Lee Petty the most credit because he won three championships and right. then he built Petty enterprises where there was another, uh, seven championships with, with Richard. So you got to count that as 10 championships and like 268 wins. So I really wasn't accurate with what I said, but I guess if you're looking, you can't really, I started to say, if you're looking at modern era and you really can't say that because Richard won his championships in the modern era, starting in 71. So I gotta, I gotta eat a little crow there and go back and say, 
Lee Petty, Petty Enterprises has to be the most successful driver owner uh, situation because Lee Petty won championships as an owner driver. And then Richard won championships as an owner driver. So right. I got to go back and correct myself. My apologies. I got to go back to Petty Enterprises on that one. Exactly. Well, you know, and I know this is not NASCAR, but I wanted to throw this out too as well. Um, you know, when you talk about owner drivers, they become extinct in NASCAR. However, you look at another racing series, namely the National Hot Rod Association. And this year in particular, um, that we have two new owners who are also veteran drivers and mm -hmm. they now become owner drivers. We've got Antron Brown in top fuel. He left Don Schumacher racing at the end of last season. It had already been planned. He was working for a couple of years to get the, the whole thing going. He is now Antron Brown racing. And then Ron Caps, who is kind of, uh, you know, he, he also left Don Schumacher racing. He, he formed Ron Caps racing and he's kind of working as a, in almost like in a partnership with Antron Brown. They're great friends. I think they're actually best friends, if I'm not mistaken, but um, you know, so there is still an owner driver um, potential or concept, if you will, out there. It's just not in NASCAR because obviously uh, NHRA is so much more um, or so less, so much more less expensive to run you know, uh, an operation than it is in, in, the, in the, you know, the NASCAR ranks, but, um, you know, I just, wait, it just thought of me, wait, it just dawned on me though. Isn't Justin Marks kind of considered not an owner driver kind of? Well, if, if he were to get back in the car, I would say so, but I don't yeah. know, is he, is he actively driving? That's and now he could be doing some road course, but I don't know. I, I, I have to stay that I'm not up to speed on that. If, if he were actually driving the cars, I would say no. If he, if he's in the Xfinity series, yes, but he's not in the one car, the 99 car. So I don't, right. know, That's what I was, I don't I was know if he qualifies on that. Yeah. This, this came to my mind. That's why I, th I, I thought I'd mention it though, but you yeah. know, I mean, I, 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 you know, one thing I would love to see, and I'm, I'm probably, I'm reaching for the moon on this one. I mean, uh, as, as Jackie Gleason used to say to the moon, Alice, and, you know I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I would like to see, and I don't know how or if NASCAR could do it, would want to do it, or what have you. I would like to see NASCAR develop a series where it would be owner-driver cars, and kind of like, um, well, again, going back to NHRA, you know, they they've really put a big emphasis on the super stock ranks, which is a sportsman rank, and you know, we've we're seeing big name drivers like Leah Pritchard, uh, Pruitt, who is obviously now Mrs. Tony Stewart. She's racing in that series. A number of other drivers are racing that series. I would like to see NASCAR, if they could find a way to uh, make it economically feasible to have a driver owner series. Uh, you know, I'm not talking 36 races. I'm talking maybe eight to 10 races, maybe across the, across the, of course, across the court, couldn't say that fast, mm -hmm. <laughs> across the course of the season and maybe even tied into certain specific tracks where, you know, maybe it would be almost like a, um, almost like a legacy race, if you will, or a legacy series. I would love to see it. And if, you know, if NASCAR could put a, a very strict limit on what could be spent and that we might, we potentially, I think, could see some, some guys, you know, run their own operations. It wouldn't be cup level, it wouldn't be Xfinity or trucks, but I still think that it, it would draw a lot of interest from fans. Well, I think so. And, and you know, the, the way I see it is if I'm not mistaken, there are race teams all over Mooresville and Charlotte and in this area in North Carolina that uh, that's got warehouses full of 2021 race cars. Yeah. They can't run. Right. And if you were to figure out a way to 
make it inexpensive if at all possible. And you run tracks like say, you know, we're, we're spitballing here, but the Martinsville's and the Wilkesboro's and the, the little quarter mile ovals at Charlotte and those types of places where you could bring back some, some guys who just want to have some fun and, and ladies who want to have some fun and run those types of races. And, you know, they don't have to be 400 mile races. They could be some 150 mile, 150 mm-hmm. lap races, those types of things. Uh, and maybe bring some of those cars out of mothballs and uh, maybe have some fun with those and have eight to, I don't know, 10 to 12 race uh, schedules per year. And where you, that way your sponsorships aren't going to be that high. Your tire bills aren't going to be that high. Look, you know, we're in an era right now of NASCAR where uh, there's anything is possible. And I used to say that'll never happen. I don't say that anymore because I've seen things happen that I thought that'll never happen. And as soon as it leaves my lips, there's a press release, (laughs) you know, so, so anything is possible. And if it brings fans closer to racing closer to NASCAR by all means, but I mean, I, I don't shut the door on anything anymore because you know what you, what you toss out there immediately. And I, you know, we don't want to It's like, wait a minute, there, there might be some legs to that. There might be some validity to that, but the key to everything and racing i think is expense and i think if you can find ways to do things that's not expensive that is enjoyable to the fans that is not too weird or kooky why not i mean have some fun with some things and and let's see how it goes and maybe and here's an idea take it a step further and figure out a way to do a 12 race series and uh, donate the money to cancer research or donate the money to uh to charity in some way mm-hmm. And have fun with it and and do some uh, for a good cause. And I think you're on the right track. Well, you know, I, it just dumb me. We actually do have one other, it's kind of, it's kind of a unique situation. We do have an owner driver in the cup series where we totally forgot about him. Denny Hamlin. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Although he's owner of one team or co-owner of one team. with Michael Yeah. Jordan, Leave it up to Denny to mess up the blanket, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, Denny, <laughs> Denny, unless I'm mistaken and I, and I may be, I may be wrong what I'm saying, but I think he's in his final year of his contract with JGR. And yeah. I know that one of his goals, if you want to call it, was eventually to race for the 23XL team. And, you know, Kurt mm-hmm. Busch, the, I think he only has the one-year deal for this year. Uh, so, you know, could Denny Hamlin become a true yeah. owner driver next year if he were to leave JGR and go to 23XL? And, you know, uh, yeah. and there's a possibility. But again, you know, we're talking about a, a, a very large company already, you know, I mean, with what they built. I mean, they're certainly not like an Alan Kowicki where, you know, you had, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 guys working for you. I mean, you know, 23XL probably has at least, I'm going to I'm gonna take a guess, maybe off the top of my head, maybe at least 75, maybe 100 employees, maybe more. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's still technically feasible or possible, but it's just, like I said, just so very rare. Though. Well, yeah, very rare. And he's the only one that's, uh, that in a, in a position to do it. And he's worked the past three or four years to get to that place. So, but yeah, he's, he would be the one person, uh, the exception to the rule, so to speak, uh, to be able to do it. And, and let me go back to what we were talking about, just this fantasy thing sure. uh, about pulling the 2021 car out of mothballs. All right, let me just, here's the cherry on top of the cake here. Why not? I've said everything else about it. <laughs> let's, let's go to 
let's limit this to maybe 20 cars tops right and let's let's paint all the cars uh in retro paint schemes okay why not i, like I mean that. let's just like let's that. do that just it has to be retro paint schemes and it has to be uh drivers that are retired and they're owner drivers maybe like the ricky Rudds and uh those types and the tony stewart's and uh, throw Jeff Gordon in, why not? And, yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> you know, and it's all retro, and they're all racing for their respective charities, and they're not taking a dime. They're racing for their charities for, let's say, 12 races a year, and it, all the money goes to their respective children's hospitals or that. And don't make them hard. Just, it's you know, don't have to get angry, none of that. It Don't have to big. It's just short track races mm-hmm. and you can say that a lifetime in NASCAR podcast 55, this is where it all began. This, this is our brainstorm, yours and mine. This is where it all started. So I want a go. commission. I want a commission. We got to get some <laughs> of that money, you know, for sure. But, you know, we, we got to move on to the end of the, of this, the podcast. Yeah. But I, I, one other guy that I just thought of, he has the ability. He's got the youth still. And I would not be surprised within the next three to five years if we see a Kyle Bush start his own cup team. Oh yeah. And, and he could certainly race, you know, for himself as well too. So, I mean, there still is, you know, a, a possibility of having owner drivers in the series. It's just certainly not like the owner drivers of back in the day, you know, yeah, but, hope, you know, that kind of thing. I, I agree, Jerry, but I just think the one piece of the puzzle that's really going to stop some of these guys from doing that, who would want to do that, is having the financial backing to do it. You know, you yeah. look at Brad Keselowski. Right, that's another one. Right? He, you know, he is technically a driver owner. Mm-hmm. You know, he is another one that we didn't really touch on too much, but he, you know, he had to go into a major corporation like Roush Fenway Keselowski to do it. I mean, it's very, very expensive. You're not talking about a singular driver owner that could pull it off. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so incredibly expensive now to do this. You know, these cars were way, you know, a third of what they're costing us now or not us, them. And, you know, but in order to pull that off and to secure himself as a team owner, he had to go uh, as a third owner or a third and a third and a third, so to mm-hmm. speak, mm-hmm. as part of his deal to drive for the race team. And, uh, I mean, I don't knock that. I'm just saying it's going to, you know, for anybody who wants to do it, Kyle Bush might have to go in with somebody. I mean, I'm just, I'm just speculating, but it might have to be something like Gibbs Bush racing down the road or something to that effect to pull that off because you're talking about a, a massive, massive amount of money to pull well, this you know, off in the future. Keselowski, I mean, he was, I think a lot of people were surprised about the way he left Penske to go to Roush, but you know, Keselowski, in my opinion, is one of the smartest guys in the sport. I mean, he both on and off the racetrack and, you know, let's face it. Jack Roush is, I think 81 now. So he, obviously he wants to continue that legacy and Keselowski saw an opportunity there to, you know, uh, 
for lack of a better word, eventually succeed Jack Roush, I think. But I think right. that he also certainly solidified his own future, both as a driver for however many more years and then as a team owner, much like Jack Roush was back in the early days of his career. He was a race car driver, then he became an owner and raced, and then he eventually just segued strictly right. to owning. So uh, sure. these, yeah, he did the right way. Yeah, and, and again, these people that we've talked about today, Lee Petty, Junior Johnson, Bobby, Richard Childress, in the era that we're talking about of a lifetime of NASCAR in the past, this we're talking about a driver owner, yep. singular. Right. We weren't, we're not talking and, and we just moved into this for 2022, but we're talking about people who had their driving skill and their two cars or three cars in front of them in the shop. We're not talking about our listeners. We're not talking about major corporate, yeah. big, you right. know, so in order to do something like that, hats off to Brad Keselowski, hats off to Denny Hamlin. We're just talking about what in the past, it was a driver buying a car, working on a car, getting a sponsor, hiring people, and then being able to take it to a racetrack. And in the era of 2022, it is a 500 employees, big sponsors, yep. big investors, big, big, big money, 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 big, big difference between, you know, back in the early 70s, 60s, 50s versus where we are today. That's wasn't, all. There a, wasn't there a song called Money, Money, Money? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. that's what it takes. Money, right, money, money. Right. All yeah. right, let's let's wrap up today's episode. We got two okay. more things to talk about. First of all, one of my favorite parts of every week is the driver of the week. And you hit it out of the park again. Great guy. We miss him so, so much. I mean, uh, I'll never forget my, you know, his, his, uh, the way he treated my wife and I, we, we were on a bus to a, an event, uh, I think it was 2004, if I remember correctly in New York. Uh, and I'm, and I'm talking about Benny Parsons. I mean, he was, it was just all the three of us on this bus and we were going to a, one of the, you know, the festivities or events they had that week, that week, you know, of champions week. And I mean, he introduced himself to my wife and he just made her feel so, I mean, she's to this day, she still talks about how nice a uh, gentleman, uh, she calls him a Southern gentleman that Benny was and really miss him because, you know, not only was he a great human being, but great driver, just a great broadcaster. I mean, you know, check off the boxes, every other word, every word would be great, 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 yeah. great, great, you know, so. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yep, sure, sure, Jerry. And, you know, uh, didn't mean to cut you off there, but just excited about talking about Benny. 1969 ARCA champion, mm -hmm. uh, and he came to the Cup Series uh, very humble, just wanted to find a great ride, wanted to be a part of it. He was born in Detroit, but he came here, and he did drive a taxi cab. Yep. And that was something that people joked with him about. He did drive a taxi, yes. That was just one of his many jobs to try to find a way to come south and be part of NASCAR. But he was an ARCA champion. He did make his way into NASCAR. He drove for uh, LG DeWitt was the team mm -hmm. owner that gave him a chance. And sadly, the driver that was before him, uh, was injured in a, in a crash at Riverside and California. And Benny was asked to hop in the car to be, uh, there to drive the car while this other driver, uh, recuperated. And as it turned out, Benny was named the driver of the car, the number 72 LG DeWitt Ford at the time. And they switched over to Chevy's. Uh, Wydell Wilson was building their engines. Mm -hmm. One thing led to another. They ended up winning the 1973 uh, championship at Rockingham, North Carolina Motor Speedway, by a wing and a prayer. He got hit by another car. All he had to do 
is basically finished the race. He was going to be a champion. He got hit on the 13th lap of the race by another driver, took the whole right side of the car off. And as the story goes very quickly, everybody wanted Benny to win this championship because he had worked so hard all year. And the way it was done then was laps completed uh, as, as far as who was going to be the champion. So he needed to, went to, to complete as many laps as possible that day. The car was towed badly, badly damaged back to the garage. People from all of the race teams contributed, now get this, contributed to working on Benny's car to get it back in the race. Juniors guys, the Wood Brothers, various top teams. They took a roll cage out of another car, half of the roll cage out of another car, welded it into the car because it was so badly damaged. They took the front the, the spindles off of another car, they did all they could and got him back. Now, these are crew members from other race teams right, right. working on this car right. to get Benny back in, replace the rear end housing. They did it. They basically rebuilt the car in the garage area. Benny was circling the track with, you can see the whole right side sheet metal was gone. They taped up the hood. They taped up the pieces of the car as much as they could. Benny's out there in half speed all the rest of the afternoon. And by the help of all these other crew members that Richard Childress's crew, everybody was out there, got him back out there. He won the 73 championship and a, a great Cinderella story. These are all competitors against Benny, but they loved him so much. They wanted him to win the championship. He goes on to do it. 1975, Benny Parsons, I mean, excuse me, David Pearson was out front a few laps to go in the 75 Daytona 500. Benny was running second. Somehow David spun out on the back stretch. Here's Benny. Benny wins the 75 Daytona 500 again with uh, Waddell Wilson building his engines that set his career in, in the right motion. He goes on throughout his career, wins 21 races uh, with various top teams and very quickly, a personal story that I got to share with Benny. In 1978, 1979, I drove race cars on a local level. Wasn't very successful because I didn't have a lot of money, maybe less talented money, <laughs> but I just, I, I wanted so bad to drive. And so I did, but here's the deal. And I, in high school, I went by Benny a little bit. And so number 12 was taken, 22 was taken, 32, 42, 52, 62, but 72 was available. So I thought I like Benny Parsons. My name is Benny. I'm going to take number 72 as my car number. Right. Right. I, right. I shared that with Benny one day in the media center years later. And, you know, he got, he was very touched by that. He said, you really did run 72 because I had 72. And I said, yes, sir. I did. <laughs> and he said, shook my hand and said, that really, really means a lot to me that you would run 72 because I had it. I said, well, Benny, that is a true story. And I showed him a photo of me sitting in my car about, you know, way younger. And I, he said, that is a really, really neat story. And I could tell it, he was touched by that. Right. And so I, I just love Benny. He was one of us on the media side after he retired from driving, worked for various uh, TV networks, you know, ESPN. And I think he was with CBS also. And right everybody he was he was so good behind the microphone we lost him to cancer several years back but loved you know I mean, you knew benny too just yep. both of us knew him really well 
but just a gentleman, just really, really good guy. I mean, he sort of reminded me of somebody you'd meet behind the counter of a paint store more so than a driver of a race car, right? Because he was just so down to earth, easy to get to know. He was like, okay, so you want eggshell white or do you, would, would you rather have satin? Right. You know, that right. type of guy, right? Yeah, he, was so, right. he was just so down to earth. You wouldn't think that he would be a race car driver, really. Yep. Yep. And he could sure, I tell you what, he could sure battle at 200 miles an hour, though, couldn't he? Well, I mean, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, he was just such a humble guy. And, yeah. you know, uh, I, I I don't know if anybody ever, you know, had anything negative to say about him. Mm-mm. But I, I will say this. Um, I remember you know, when he passed away January 16th of 2007 in Charlotte, uh, we were down for... Um, uh, preseason testing for the Daytona 500. Um, you know, there was a number of cars that were down there. I was down there with my daughter and I'll never forget the, the pall that came over the, the track when, the, you know, when the word came out that Benny had passed and, you know, that it, 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 it set, it kind of set the tone for the, that day, the next day, because he was just so loved and so respected and so humbled. I mean, we, we lost him way too early. Like a lot of drivers we've lost, you know, way too early, but um, you know, Benny Parsons to me, you know, if I had to name five guys who were, you know, my, among my favorite drivers, both behind the wheel, as well as just, you know, their personality, Benny would definitely be in that top five. Well, I know Jerry. And you know, the thing he would always say to me, and I I know he said it to everybody. He'd walk up to you and say, what do you know? Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. What do you know? You know, like what's going on? What do you know? And that's right. That's right. And, you know, I just think they, I just, it's good memories. Good that's memories. Right. That's right. All right. Final part of today's show, the track of the week. And we're not, we're not going to talk about Altamont Schenectady. <laughs> I love you, man. I can't even say it. So <laughs> well, you got like me I said, on that. You, know, you got Salisbury. I got Schenectady. We yeah. were even now. So, but, so, but, but this yeah. is an interesting track because, you know, we were talking about this before that we started taping and um, it's a, a track that has a great legacy in the sport. Uh, you know, unfortunately the last, what, almost 20 years now, it's not really been a significant factor in the NASCAR world. I mean, yeah, the trucks raced there for a few years back in, I think it was uh, 2014 and 15. I think I, if I remember correctly, but we're talking about the track of the week is uh, which was North Carolina motor speedway. Then it became North Carolina international speedway. And now it's known as Rockingham speedway. And, you know, just, um, it's, it's kind of, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, of, um, uh, oh, what's the name of the track? Uh, Wilkes, North Wilkesboro that, you know, yeah. it went, it went away now, North Wilkesboro, obviously they're in the process of getting that back together. Uh, I would love to see NASCAR go back to Rockingham, but for, you know, it, it was a challenge, you know, from an economic standpoint, from a, you know, drawing attendance and that kind of thing, but from a, facility standpoint from a track standpoint from a competition standpoint it was an excellent track in my opinion oh yeah it sure was and i miss going there and a matter of fact i think if you went there today you could pretty much uh if you had enough help with the hot dogs and the gates and and all that and and credentials and all that i think you could pretty well race there now the track's in excellent shape but it the first race there was uh, October 31st, 1965. Curtis Turner was the, the winner of that race. He drove for the Wood Brothers. And the NASCAR was there uh, from then until uh, February 22nd of 2004. Matt Kenseth drove for Roush uh, Racing. Uh, and it was uh, 2004 when when the track held their final 
uh, NASCAR race there, which is very sad. I was there that day and it just felt very, very heavy because um, we knew that was going to be the last race. And I don't know, it's just, you know, I, I so enjoyed going there. It's one of those racetracks, the funny thing, real quick, the one thing it, people would ask me, could you tell me how to get to Rockingham? And I knew the back way and I couldn't tell them how to do the back way. I could do it. You could ride with me, <laughs> but I couldn't <laughs> tell them how to do it. Because it was just you. so many, just, yeah, because there's so many lefts and rights and stuff. And yeah. you go go through Ellerby, North Carolina, which yep, is yep, yep, yep. Where, where Benny Parsons uh, lived for many years. And, but Rockingham was a, a mile point oh one seven, a little bit over a mile in length. And uh, they would run the 500 mile races. There are so many close finishes. I remember one year, Neil Bonnet uh, won over Harry Gant there. Uh, you know, Richard Petty won some real close ones there. Oh my gosh. Just some, some great, great races and a sad Sunday uh, there sad weekend was when it was the week after uh, uh Dale Earnhardt passed right, at Daytona right, right. and oh my gosh you could just feel this deep sense of loss the next week I mean it was quiet and and everybody knew we were there but we didn't want to be there right. yep. you know just some some very high moments at Rockingham some very low moments there uh, and some great, great race weekends there. I just, I loved going to rock and I'm very sad. As I said, that it was going to be the last weekend that we're there in 2004, but Hey, I'm hopeful that someday we're going to go back to Rockingham and, and race there again, but some great races. Let me give you very, very quickly, some winners there early on Richard Petty won a bunch there. Donnie Allison was a winner. Uh, let's see, going down the list, Kale Yarbrough won there in 75, uh, many, many went Daryl Waltrip won some there, the big names, Mark Martin, Davey Allison, uh, Dale Jarrett. And then of course, Steve Park, you know, won there right after Dale Earnhardt passed away driving a DEI Chevrolet, right. uh, Johnny Benson was a winner there in 2002, Dale Jarrett, Bill Elliott. And then, as I said, Matt Kenseth, uh, won the final day race there in February of 2004. But great races at Rockingham and known as North Carolina Motor Speedway. Hoping someday, like I said, tracks in excellent shape and hoping someday NASCAR will go back. That's right. Well, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago about, you know, as as you said, our fantasy uh, thing about doing the owner driver thing and having like a short, like a 10 or 12 race season. Hey, we got to put Rockingham on that schedule for sure. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it'd be fun. Great, great racetrack for sure. Exactly. Well, Ben, as usual, uh, great show as in, you know, as usually go over the hour limit, but we, that's okay. We don't, we could go two hours if we wanted to yeah, go, but, sure uh, could. but yeah. uh, certainly, I mean, I love the concept of the, uh, the owner drivers and you know, great topic, you know, like you said, a lot of big names, uh, both, you know, back in the day, as well as, you know, even, you know, more recently, like in Alan Kowicki and Dave Marcus and, and, uh, even to, you know, they were kind of like the, probably the, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, the forerunners, if you will two mm-hmm. guys of today, like a Brad Keselowski who bought into Roush Fenway or, you know, Justin Marks or Denny Hamlin. I mean, you know, they showed that it still is possible. Yeah. It's a whole different ballgame in terms of, you know, the big business, the big money, the big sponsorship and all that kind of thing, but still to have your name, not only on the side of your car, but also at the company headquarters and you're the boss you know, there's just no better feeling, I think, than that. So uh, hopefully we will see more drivers, you know, especially those who are getting, you know, up in their career, 
may you know buy buy into a team. I mean, Kevin Harvick is a perfect example that I'm thinking of. You know, would would he potentially be a uh, owner driver for Stuart Haas? I mean, could it become Stuart Haas Harvick or something like that. You know, sure. I mean, uh, or you know, like a Kyle Busch. Could Kyle Busch start his own Cup team and call it Kyle Busch? You know, he already has Kyle Busch Motorsports, so he could probably just make a Cup team out of that. But um, yeah. I, I yeah. think that you know, we definitely hit a hit a. Well, uh, a very good topic today for sure. Yeah, I think so. And and here's the thing you and I can find a race team and I can buy the, uh, the little front spindle on one tire and you can <laughs> buy one on the back and maybe we could, <laughs> that's about all I could afford <laughs> on exactly. one car. The, the little thing that holds the front wheel on is all I could probably buy. I don't know how you stand, <laughs> right, <right>. but <laughs> that's about all I could afford. I, you I know, or maybe a steering wheel, maybe a steering wheel. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I, that's about all I could do. I can afford a mirror. I think it's about yeah. it. Though, so, but uh, that's about all I can do. Or you know, maybe maybe some soft drinks for the crew. This is true. This is true. Yeah. So, so there you go. All right, my friend. As always, another great show, and uh, we go on to episode fifty-six next week of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. He's Ben White. I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Hope everyone enjoyed the, today's episode or this week's episode. And we look forward to hear for you to hearing not only more episodes coming up, but you know, certainly go back and, and listen to some of our past podcasts as well. We've done 55 up to this point and uh, some really, really great topics we've had, especially the last, uh, last 10, 12, 15 weeks. We've really been hitting it out of the park almost every single week. So you know, give it, you know, if you get a chance, you know, you, I think you'll really enjoy some of the, the other topics we've covered over the, the last several weeks. And, uh, We've got a lot of great other topics coming up over the upcoming weeks as well, too. So so for Ben White, I'm Jerry Benkowski. Thanks again for listening to a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. We'll catch you later uh, next week with episode number 56 right here on the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Lifetime in NASCAR is hosted by Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski and produced by Josh Mall. Lifetime in NASCAR is a proud member of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network and is available on all major podcasting platforms. Visit GroovyMotorsports.com for more shows and don't forget to check out the Out of the Groove Weekly Viewer's Guide. The Weekly Viewer's Guide is fresh every week of the season and includes exclusive content from myself and Ben White you won't find anywhere else. Get it every week. It's all fresh, it's all free, and it's all on GroovyMotorsports.com. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.